Hello and welcome to The Catch. I'm Matt Hansen, freelance editor with FindBet.com. Here with Brad Mealy, writer and contributor for FindBet.com, we are bringing you the ninth installment of this series where we will discuss everything going on in the world of sports that we can fit into 60 minutes. Throughout this series, we will cover a range of topics, including sports betting and fantasy, along with keeping up with current events, trade rumors, and more. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at find underscore bet and on Instagram at find bet, just one word. You can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts by searching find bet. All of our newest content can be found on findbet.com. Every Monday, check out the weekly assist to get all the news from around the world of sports from the past week, all in one place. Find out who to drop, who to swap, and who to shop for your fantasy team up now on findbet.com. And later this week, you can find NFL DFS start and sit recommendations, along with betting advice for the Week 10 NFL games. The news broke this past Sunday that Alex Trebek passed away at the age of 80. He hosted Jeopardy for 36 years and was a longtime staple of family televisions around the dinnertime um, and subject of one of the most famous SNL sketches with Will Ferrell playing the game show host during Celebrity Jeopardy parodies. As a result of this, we're going to move through this episode in a Jeopardy format uh, and do something a little bit different just to kind of pay tribute to Alex Trebek, who was a, a big part of, I think, everybody's lives as, you know, whether you're with your grandma or your, your mom and dad uh, sitting around the dinner table, uh, finishing up and then going to watch uh, Jeopardy to realize how dumb you all are, uh, not being able to answer most of the questions. At least that was my uh, experience throughout most of the time that I, I was watching it. But Brad, I will be giving you Jeopardy-style answers as we transition through segments, and you will try to see how many Jeopardy questions you can get right. Um, so let's start out by talking about what's going on in the world of sports. Um, the first question, Brad, or answer, I guess I should say, is this father and son duo became the third NASCAR champion duo, joining Lee and Richard Petty and Ned and Dale Jarrett in that exclusive club this past weekend. Can you, are you gonna take off and son are you, duo? Are you gonna take off points if I don't answer it within a question? Do I have is this true Jeopardy? <laughs> well so. you don't have to. No. It'd probably be more fun right. if you did. So I do know this one. Um, this would be Bill and Chase Elliott. That is Chase correct. Elliott just won the NASCAR championship this past weekend. Yes, they did. Chase Elliott became uh, the NASCAR Cup Series champion on Sunday night, becoming the third youngest driver to accomplish that feat at just 24 years old. His father, uh, Bill Elliott, a NASCAR Hall of Famer and 1988 NASCAR champion, was there to celebrate his son's greatest achievement. Chase grew up around the racetracks, um, and legends of the sport were his uncles and mentors, uh, including Dale Earnhardt Sr., Jeff Gordon, and Jimmy Johnson. Um, being the son of one of the most popular drivers in his era has been both an advantage and a curse, as the family name brings both attention and expectations. Uh, but obviously, Chase is living up to those expectations, and he was very gracious uh, after the win citing both Jeff Gordon and Jimmy Johnson is along with Hendrick Motorsports um, you know, all the people that kind of got him to where he is and at, at such a young age you can kind of tell that it's just somebody that was kind of born to do it you know he's a prodigy in the sport and he's definitely one of the exciting young names coming up in NASCAR and um, and I'm happy that he won it it's always good to see young people succeeding it just kind of draws me back to when uh, Tiger Woods was making that that run uh, as a young 20 some year old uh, on the PGA Tour and uh, it's always exciting to see. Uh, so you got that one right. So Brad, you are one for one. Congratulations. Yep. The second question that we have here is answer. He is currently the oldest UFC fighter to win the light heavyweight title. Uh, okay. Um, <laughs> he's currently, are we talking about currently or he's just of all time? Of all time, the oldest to ever win the light heavyweight title in the UFC. Oh, man. I do not follow UFC a ton. Jeez. Um, uh, we'll give you a hint in the fact that he has one of the most uh, recognizable haircuts in the history of UFC, and he was a knockout artist. Knockout artist. Um, boy, I'm going to have to just throw a guess up and – uh, Chuck Liddell. That's the only really. 
<laughs> that is right. You got it. Chuck Liddell at 35 years and three months uh, was his age when he won the UFC light heavyweight title by knocking out Randy Couture at UFC 52. Uh, the reason for that question is that at UFC Vegas 13 this past Saturday, 41-year-old Glover Teixeira defeated Thiago Santos with a third round submission. Uh, Teixeira has now won his last five fights and owns the record for most finishes and most submissions in UFC history by a light heavyweight. John Jones, who is currently believed to be making a transition uh, up to the heavyweight division from light heavyweight, has defeated both Santos and Teixeira uh, in the light heavy in the light heavyweight division. But he had comments that he was impressed with Teixeira's performance at UFC Vegas 13 and hinted that maybe he should be the one taking on Jan Blachowicz um, next for the light heavyweight championship rather than Israel Adesanya. Uh, but Dana White had mentioned uh, Adesanya as a potential opponent for Blachowicz just because uh, it's a super fight that's uh, going to be really a marketable fight for that for UFC. But um, Teixeira certainly earned his opportunity, and at 41 years old, if he were to get that opportunity and win, he would be the oldest uh, to ever win that that belt in that division. So, Brad, with a, a guess, going two for two, uh, very impressed with you so far. Literally just guessed there. I like That's probably <laughs> the most recognizable UFC name for me. Did the haircut thing help out at all? It had – no, it did not help. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's move on to another one that I, I was questionable if you would get this one too. Uh, just depends if you're paying attention to the news or not this past weekend. Um, but answer. He is the first Mexican player to win on the PGA Tour in 42 years with his win at the Houston Open this past Sunday. Uh, see, I do know this because I actually follow golf a little bit. So it was Carlos Ortiz um, ended up beating uh, Hideki Matsuyama and Dustin Johnson. So it was very, yeah. very good, uh, very exciting uh, finish. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was really close at the end, and Matsuyama and Johnson, both obviously some of the top players in the world. So for someone like Ortiz to kind of come out uh, of the blue and, and get this victory leading into Masters weekend, which I'm extremely excited about. I'm sure you are as well. Oh, yeah. um, but Ortiz finished at 13 under, and this victory qualifies him for the Masters Tournament next year in 2021. So congratulations to him. Um, as for Johnson, he will go into this year's Masters Tournament on a hot streak. He has not finished outside of the top six in his last six tournament appearances. And in those six wins or six appearances, he has two wins and two runner-up finishes in that time frame. So that's bad news for the rest of the field as the world's best golfer is playing some of his best golf uh, right before the most important major on the schedule in many people's eyes. Uh, let's move on to soccer really quickly. Uh, the field is set for the MLS Cup playoffs. The Eastern Conference had 10 teams qualify for postseason play. So as a result, they'll have two playing matches to determine the final seeding. The New England Revolution, who is the eighth seed, will play the Montreal Impact, the ninth seed. And Nashville SC will take on Miami CF. The winners will face either Philadelphia or Toronto FC, uh, with Philadelphia getting the lower-seeded play-in winner. So the rest of the field looks like this. Um, in the Eastern Conference, we have Philadelphia um, and Toronto, as we had mentioned, playing the, seed, uh, the play-in winners. Um, and then we have the Columbus Crew taking on the New York Red Bulls and the Orlando City Soccer Club taking on New York City FC. In the West, we have it's all set with the eight teams. Uh, number one, Sporting Kansas City will be taking on the eight seed San Jose Earthquakes. The Seattle Sounders take on LAFC. Portland Timbers have FC Dallas and Minnesota United play the Colorado Rapids. Um, this brings me to your fourth Jeopardy question. Brad, are you ready? I hope. <laughs> <laughs> okay, answer. This team holds the record for the most MLS Cup titles in league history. Oh, my gosh. Uh, who was the team that David Beckham played for? You are on the right track. This is the correct answer, but I, I honestly, I have no idea. Um, uh, I I just I don't even I can't even put a guess. I, I think it was in California, but I can't remember. You're right. I'm gonna give it to you because you got David Beckham, you got California. Uh, the most MLS Cup titles in league history belongs to the LA Galaxy. They have won uh, five titles in nine appearances. Um, but this year, uh, relevant question because they missed the postseason this year, uh, finishing finishing outside of the top eight. So 
uh, hoping to bounce back, uh, maybe bring David Beckham back. I'm sure that he could still perform at a pretty decent level. And um, yeah, so maybe that's an idea for them to turn their seasons around. But bad year for the Galaxy this year. Speaking of disappointments, we'll move on to the NFL now. Deshaun Watson and the Houston Texans outlasted rookie quarterback Jake Luton and the Jaguars on Sunday, 27 to 25. Both teams entered one and six, but the Texans record doesn't reflect how they've been playing of late. Uh, in my opinion, Watson is good enough to win his team a couple of games down the stretch, and he's developed a, a good chemistry and relationship with Will Fuller, who I believe has caught a touchdown in six consecutive games, longest streak in the NFL. Um, <clears throat> J.J. Watt recorded his 100th career sack in that game. Which brings me to your next Jeopardy question. Brad, are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, answer. These four players reached that 100 career sack mark faster than Watt. Can you name those four players? Uh, all right. Uh, I feel like Bruce Smith has to be one of them. Absolutely. Okay. Um, Reggie White. That is correct. All right. Uh... Um, how about, uh, Michael Strahan? No, I would have guessed Strahan too, but there is another giant. Another giant, uh, Lawrence Taylor. Lawrence Taylor. And there's one that I would have not have gotten, uh, plays in the same division as the giants. And that's all I'll give you. Mm, okay. Um, I feel like you played for the Redskins. Am I right there? Or I should he, say the Washington football team now. I believe he did at one point. At one point. But not primarily. Not primarily. Okay. So he's in the NFC East. Um, Reggie White played for the Packers, but I think he played for the Eagles too. But He did. Uh, and who am I missing from the – is there anybody from the Cowboys I'm missing? Oh, I feel like I am. But I, I need another hint. It, it is a cowboy. It is a cowboy. Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> um, I have no idea. I have it's, no way to even. I would have never gotten this, and he did it quicker than Bruce Smith. But it's Demarcus Ware. Really? <laughs> really? Wow. Really. Yeah, Reggie White did it in ninety-six games. Um. Lawrence Taylor, it took him 106. DeMarcus Ware did it in 113 games, and Bruce Smith in 115. Wow. Very surprised. Very yeah. surprised. But anyways, you got the – unfortunately, that's your first wrong. So you got four out of five. You're doing excellent. Very well so far. Very impressed with you. Good job by you, buddy. A new competitor has entered the arena in the fight for the NFC North. Minnesota are winners of their last two games, and as the Bears continue to slide, the Vikings could ride Dalvin Cook all the way to a wildcard spot in the NFC. Cook was yet again fantastic on Sunday. He got 252 total yards and two touchdowns uh, for the Vikings in a 34-20 win over the Lions. Uh, 252 yards from scrimmage, still not good enough to be in the top 50 all time for a single game, though. But someone on the next team we're going to talk about is inside that top 10. Brad, are you ready? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I hope. <laughs> These are some crazy questions. I told you, man, I didn't know if I was going to have enough time putting this together. I wanted to have some good questions for you. I think you might get this one, though. All right, I'm ready. Answer. Registering in at 306 yards from scrimmage and a performance from 2015, this player sits at number eight all time in the record category of most yards from scrimmage in a single game. Number eight all time. Eight all time, 2015, 306 yards from scrimmage. Um, who did he play for? I need a hint for there. I will give you the hint of it is not a running back because I'm sure that's where your mind went first. Uh, okay. 2015. Let's see. Uh, not a running back. So probably most likely a wide receiver. I don't think a tight end would <laughs> or <laughs> quarterback, I guess, but from a scrimmage standpoint. Oh, um, I think I, Antonio Brown. He had Antonio that Brown 
is correct. Do you uh, want to hear uh, the yes. stats? Do you want to hear the stats on this game? I'm ready. Antonio Brown had 17 catches for 284 yards. He had a touchdown receiving too, and he added the rest on rushing. But just think about that: 17 catches for 284 yards in one game. That is that is crazy. Like <laughs> he's had some crazy games, and he's been obviously, you know, uh, a really good wide receiver back in his prime. But like that just is un you know unworldly, otherworldly, I should say. Yeah, it was just a crazy performance. Um, I. I I honestly, I want to try to check Game Pass and see if it goes back that far, just so I can rewatch that game because I didn't. I mean, I didn't watch it when it happened, but and looking through and, and and doing some research for this podcast and and finding some of these trivia questions, that might be the statistic that like stood out to me the most out of any of these questions. And some of the questions are pretty good, I think. So, uh, but anyways, Antonio Brown, great performance in 2015 with the Steelers. Not the same type of performance that we saw from him in his debut with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers this past week against the New Orleans Saints. Uh, Drew Brees and the Saints handed Tom Brady and the Bucs an embarrassing loss on Sunday night, and the Bucs were excited to see what the offense looked like, adding A.B. in and getting a healthy Chris Godman back from injury. Uh, what they got was a huge plate of disappointment with a side of only eight rushing yards, Brad, eight rushing yards. Uh, not sustainable when you're playing a team um, that has the offensive firepower like the Saints. Uh, if you can't get anything going on the run, then uh, it's going to be difficult because they're going to be clogging up the passing lanes. This is undoubtedly not how Tampa Bay envisioned this game going. Um, but it's not the first time this season that they've hit a bump in the road. Um, it happened to them early on in the year. They're still uber talented, uh, but every opponent left on their schedule either has a, a winning record currently or is trending in the right direction of late, which includes the Vikings and the Falcons that they have to play uh, the Falcons twice still on the schedule. Um, so, Brad, what do you make of Tampa Bay? What do you make of Tom Brady? How do you think Antonio Brown's going to contribute to this offense? Um, I know that we've seen a little bit of Gronkowski more and more uh, as the season's gone on. So do you think there's going to be a lag of AB getting involved, or do you think that he's going to be making a more immediate splash? And is that going to hurt Chris Godwin and Mike Evans' production? That's like 17 questions all in one, but do your best, Brad, <laughs> to try to answer me. Yeah. So, I mean, going back to the Saints and the Bucks game last week, I mean, I think it was a surprise on how much they struggled on offense, but I think it was more of a surprise I, to me how Bruce Arians kind of has handled Brady. Um, the first, I guess, half of the year, he's, he's definitely been pretty coarse in his uh, analysis of Brady. I think he kind of threw him under the bus a little bit about why the offense was sputtering. Um, and I don't know if it's kind of some maybe passive aggressiveness that Antonio Brown was kind of forced on him as a player, you know, to onto the team. I don't know if he was crazy about that, but as we've kind of seen in years past with Brady in New England, he's, kind of the one running the show sometimes. So uh, I think that uh, it was a little bit of that. And also it, they couldn't get a first down until midway through the second quarter. I think they went three and out four straight times. So, um, and the Saints, you know, offense is only going to be stopped momentarily. They're going to score points. So you really can't blame the Tampa defense. And by the time it was ready for, you know, they were, by the time they got things going offensively, they were down by three scores already. So, that from that point, it wasn't ideal, obviously, starting out the way they did on offense. But um, I think that this was more of an aberration than it was a uh, is going to be the norm, I should say. Uh, obviously, uh, the Saints are getting healthier. Michael Thomas being back is a big boost for them. Yep. Um, and with when it regards to Brady, obviously, he he he's shown that he can play at a high level. I think it was just. You know, teams go through these lulls sometimes where they just get beat up. You know, you see with almost every team that they have one or two bad losses a year. And, you know, it's Kansas City, even last year, the year they won the Super Bowl, they really didn't kind of start hitting on all cylinders until like week 10 or 11. So um, I this is a time of the year where teams are still finding out about themselves. So I'm not going to panic just yet on the egg that they laid there on Sunday night football. No, I, I don't think so either. And 
the interesting thing that you did say, and I think we've talked about it before, is, you know, preseason when the, the rumors of where Antonio Brown might end up this season were floating around pretty rapidly. Um, you know, the Seahawks were a name floated out there. The Packers wasn't really realistic, but it made sense. Um, but then you had the connection already, even before Tom Brady ever suited up for the Bucks, that he would want Antonio Brown brought there. And Coach Bruce Arians was always very vocal about not wanting him in his locker room um, or anywhere around his team. Um, so, you know, the dynamic between Brady and Arians, I think, goes to your point of, it looks like Brady holds all the cards and the power uh, in that relationship within that organization. Yeah, absolutely. I, and like I said before, I think we've seen that before. I, I think he was a big reason why the Patriots traded away Garoppolo to the 49ers. I think Bill Belichick was ready for uh, Jimmy to be the kind of the heir to Tom Brady and Brady didn't like that. So um I think right now it's it's Brady's offense, it's Brady's team, and I'm not sure Arians is too crazy about that. No, no, I don't think so either. Really quickly before we move on, um, Godwin, Mike Evans, AB, uh, rank them in order of who you want on your fantasy team, most to least. Uh, I probably am taking Evans, Godwin, and Antonio Brown in that order. So um, Godwin's had some issues with injuries. Evans, I think – has been he had a little bit of a run of injury there with a hamstring I think early in the year but he's been getting open um it's just got to get the ball fed to him you know um and I, I just I, I think Antonio Brown is more of a gadget player for them I don't he may have a good game here and there but I don't know if he's going to be anybody that's going to be taking over games for them I'm going to disagree on that I think AB is going to actually work his way into being the primary receiver in this offense. And the only reason I say that is we know how talented Mike Evans is. And we know the quarterbacks that have been throwing him the ball while he's been getting those hundred catch seasons and, you know, pretty close to double did a touchdowns throughout most of his career. And for him to be almost shunned at times, it feels like just not even being looked at by Tom Brady, uh, that concerns me. And the fact that Brady and, and AB have had these ties now for a couple of years where they've both been pretty transparent about having the desire to play with each other. Um, you know, I think that Brady is looking at, at AB like I finally got the Lamborghini that I've been looking for. And, you know, we saw what they were able to do in one game uh, with little preparation in New England together. Um, I think that there's an outside shot that AB could be very fantasy relevant moving forward. Uh, so if you picked him up in a redraft league or you, you're like me and you stash him in dynasty uh, or just in TFS, I think that especially DFS wise, he'll probably have a pretty low price tag on him um, for the next few weeks until we kind of see where the dust settles and where he's going to be uh, in regards to that offense. But uh, I think there's an outside chance that we could see AB, um, be pretty fantasy relevant and important to that team uh, if they're going to be winning games down the stretch. Uh, but let's move on now to the next question. We talked a lot about Tom Brady. Um, so this one I think you'll get pretty easily, Brad. Uh, but answer, Tom Brady, obviously coming from New England, who is tied with the Denver Broncos for most losses in Super Bowl history with five. Brady, as mentioned, will take on the Vikings, who are tied with this team for the second most losses in Super Bowl history. It's a cruel question. It's a cruel <laughs> one that you decided to throw in there. Um, but obviously this one would be the Buffalo Bills. They've each lost four Super Bowls. And uh, they're kind of, you know, joined at that narrative just because the Vikings have lost four. The Bills obviously lost four in a row, which is unprecedented. You know, obviously <laughs> going to four straight, but also losing four straight. Um, and the, the Vikings lost their four Super Bowls over a period of two or three decades. So, Maybe a little bit easier to stomach, but still, yeah. It would be <laughs> Never easy to stomach, Brad. Yeah, yeah. I really put that in there because I knew you would get it. I didn't know how you'd be doing in the Jeopardy game, so I just kind of wanted to throw you a softball in there uh, to make sure that you got a right answer in the middle of the game. So You didn't have any, any faith. I don't – you know, thanks. You've been doing excellent. You know, you're really just – you're really just – overperforming at this point, earning uh, that contract extension that you've been whining about, you know, you're just really doing all the things you need to do. But speaking of people overperforming and doing what they need to do, Josh Allen won a showdown with fellow MVP candidate, Russell Wilson on Sunday. He threw for 415 yards and three touchdowns and added another touchdown on the ground. 
A 17-point fourth quarter by the Bills kept the game out of reach and served as a statement win for the Bills. Uh, you know, Brad, after I kind of gave you that ribbing on the question, I'll let you kind of run here and just kind of talk about the Bills and Josh Allen and what you see them uh, doing the rest of the year. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely a signature win. I think a lot of Seahawks fans that, on Twitter that were chirping during the week and kind of saw this as uh, a uh, – you know, easy win for the Seahawks with the way the Bills defense was playing or were a little bit quieter on Sunday night into the beginning of this week. Um, I think the biggest thing that came out of the game is just how bad Seattle's defense is. You know, Jamal Adams came back and he's a really good uh, rusher, especially from the safety position, and he plays a run really well. But his coverage skills are just – they're not there. Um, so for him to be elite in my mind, he's got to be able to bring that in all three aspects of the game. Um like Earl Thomas, um, those type of things. Ed Reed, Ed Reed Troy so, Palomalu. Yeah, absolutely. So from there, that's been – that was the biggest surprise. And then also on the Bills' offensive side, this was kind of – you know, Josh Allen had had a, a few weeks where he kind of come back down to earth a little bit. Mm-hmm. Teams were playing a little bit more zone coverage uh, against him, and he kind of had to work through some of those issues with – not trying to play hero ball and, and not being able to get the large chunks of, of yards like he was when teams were playing man. So he altered his, his uh, approach a little bit and started taking what defenses gave him. And then now with that, the Seahawks played man only 30% of the time this week. When they did play man, they got torched, but they also got torched when they played zone. So <laughs> yeah, not, not, not a great a result either way. Yeah. He's done a lot better from, um, you know, all right, well, we can't play man, we'll play zone and then shut him down. So he had a little bit of issue with that when the Titans did it. Um, I think weather and the Chiefs played a little bit of a role on the Monday night game there. Yep. Um, but then you saw against the, the Jets um, where they didn't score a touchdown, but he had over 400 yards of offense. So um, the Jets had one of the, the best uh, red zone defenses in the NFL. So um, you know, the Patriots game was windy and cold. They ran the ball a ton, and that's how they won that game. So this was – it was nice to see, obviously, him bounce back. I think that it's a signature win for the Bills. You know, the Seahawks are 6-1. and one. Um, They just lost in a, in a crazy game to Arizona um, two weeks ago. So, really, you know, they had some quality wins. And um, in what I think the NFC West is still one of the hardest divisions in, uh, in the NFL. So, Absolutely. Um, you know, it's exciting. I think that the, the, the obviously they have a uh, big task again this week. They, they go out to Arizona to play Kyler Murray and the Cardinals. So they got to replicate that. And then if they can win this week going into the bye at, at eight and two, I mean, they're going to be sitting really good, especially for a division record with that record going in. Look, I don't have the week 10 schedule in front of me, but just hearing Josh Allen versus Kyler Murray right now uh, coming up, I mean, I can't find a better game that I can possibly put together in my mind because both of those guys can get it done with their arm and their legs, extend plays, extend drives. Um, and they're both guys that you feel like when you're watching them that their team is never out of it because they can just do so many things to get their teams back in the game. And um, so I'm really excited for that. And I don't know if Kenyon Drake's going to be back but I'm hoping not because I need to get another week out of Chase Edmonds for my fantasy team. Um, do you know if, uh, if there's been any news on Drake and whether or not he's going to be healthy? Um, right now it's still kind of up in the air. I mean, Wednesday is kind of the first day of the week that we kind of gauge how players are going to do with their practice uh, designations. So, um, you know, Edmonds didn't have necessarily as great a week as we thought last week he would um, with the Cardinals playing the Dolphins, but um, especially in a shootout too, they the, you know, the Cardinals lost that game thirty four to thirty one. So and he um, got a lot of touches. He got twenty plus carries. Yeah, just you know, you, you want to obviously with that offense, he's gonna you know any type of share of that offense is gonna produce. It's just Murray is just so he vultures so many rushing touchdowns in the red zone, and it's just crazy. It's tough to to trust Arizona running backs from that standpoint. But yeah, twenty touches was definitely a good thing for sure. And maybe it translates to better production uh, this week, but we will see. Uh, Brad, right now you are six out of seven with our Jeopardy questions, and we will move on to the eighth answer. Brad, are you ready? I'm ready. This one's a little tough. Answer. In 2019, the Dallas Cowboys center Travis Frederick made the Pro Bowl. He was joined by these three teammates. 
Those three teammates. So Travis Frederick made the Pro Bowl. Um, I'm going to say Zach Martin was one of them. That is correct. Two more. Two more. Zeke Elliott. Correct. And... Elliot Martin. It's got to be one of their offensive linemen. I'm trying to go through my head with, with who they are because I don't think Cooper made it. Frederick Martin. I don't think it, it's between their tackles. It's either Lael Collins or uh, Ty, Tyron Smith is their other tackle. Um, I'm going to go Collins. I think he – I don't remember Smith being there, I, I think. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, man. Oh, it was Smith, wasn't it? It was Smith. Yeah, I can't oh. believe that you got that. I mean, usually offensive linemen are just uh, not in people's frontal cortexes. So, uh, the fact that you're able to run through that entire offensive line made me think that you would probably get Travis Frederick as well if I didn't put that in the answer. So I would have gotten Frederick, I think. If you would have put Smith in, then I think that I would have been able to get all three pretty quick. But That's really good. I really wish that I could award that to you, but <laughs> you did way better than I thought. So, congratulations on that. But you're, you're six of eight now. Um, but, yes, the, in 2019, the Cowboys had uh, Travis Frederick, Tyron Smith, Zach Martin, and Ezekiel Elliott make the Pro Bowl. I thought for sure that you would have, you know, thrown either Cooper or Prescott in there. So, so good job on you. The Steelers escaped with a win, though, against the struggling Cowboys in Week 9. The dedication of getting Zeke Elliott and Tony Pollard involved in the offense seemed to be a more effective strategy for that offense to keep the chains moving and dictating the pace of play a little bit more. Um, the Cowboys brought a 10-point lead, actually, into the final quarter, but that lead was erased with the Steelers eventually winning the game 24-19. to um, So the Steelers did not look as dominant as we all expected them to, and the Cowboys looked a little bit better. Uh, Garrett Gilbert, I believe, was the quarterback for the Cowboys in Week 9. Uh, but really, to me, what and watching what the, the parts of the game that I did watch, I don't know if you caught any, but they did – use the combination of Elliott and Pollard, you know, partly I'm sure because of the injury that Elliott went into the game with. Um, but also partly because I just think that they realize Tony Pollard's a lot better than somebody that's just like going to come in as a, a, a sub for, you know, 10 to 15 snaps throughout the game. Um, and it's probably something that they should have been doing from the onset of the season, starting week one, when Dak Prescott was still healthy. And maybe if they involved the run a little bit more early on and throughout games um, before Prescott's injury, they wouldn't have exposed him to that injury ultimately. Um, but do you have any takes on the Steelers and Cowboys game? And is there any glimmer of hope for the Cowboys coming out of this one? Yeah, I think that, you know, they're often struggled punching it into the end zone. That was the biggest thing. They kicked a ton of field goals last week. And the Steelers were only going to be asleep on offense for a while. I was really surprised at how how bad the Steelers' offense was against a really exploitable Dallas defense. So um, whether that was something that Dallas schemed up to try to stop the bleeding or whether that was more of, you know, the Steelers have kind of gotten this moniker of playing down to their team's record, their opponent's record, um, and either just barely squeaking it out or getting upset just because of that. Uh, maybe not. Maybe the Steelers didn't take Dallas as seriously as they probably should have. And you know, there's an unknown element too. You know, Garrett Gilbert started at, at quarterback for them this week, so there's no tape on Gilbert. And I always think that that's the toughest, uh, toughest offense to, um, toughest offense to, I guess, Plan prepare for. for from yeah. a defensive standpoint, because they don't have any tape on them. They don't know what they're going to run. They know what they're going to run with Dak. They know what they're going to run with, um, you know, Dalton. Um, they've kind of got those tendencies, but Gilbert really hasn't had much of a run in the NFL. So um, I think that that surprise factor played a role early, but, you know, the Steelers defense definitely adjusted and, and obviously them not being able to score any touchdowns was a determining factor there in that game. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been frustrating, especially if, if you're somebody that is a fantasy manager and drafted Ezekiel Elliott pretty high in your draft, I'd imagine to be within the top five picks in the first round. Me, myself, I have stock in him, so it's been disappointing, um, but I'm sure um, most disappointing for Ezekiel Elliott himself. Um, but yeah, I don't see the Cowboys really turning this season around anywhere, and 
And again, we've, we've hit it on it before in, in previous episodes, but, you know, Dak Prescott's price tag is just going up and up and up because Jerry Jones has a very limited window to win another Super Bowl, which I'm sure he'd like to do um, before he passes on. But they're far ways off, and, and they're even farther uh, if they don't have Dak, Pre- Dak Prescott at quarterback. So they're going to be uh, in a hard spot here coming into this offseason. But I want to make sure that we have enough time to get through as many questions as we have for the Jeopardy game we've been playing throughout this episode. In tribute to the late Alex Trebek, the longtime host of Jeopardy that passed away on Sunday. Um, so let's really quickly just kind of take a little break here and go over a couple of fantasy relevant things and DFS related things here before moving on to the rest of the Jeopardy game. Um, so this week, the who to drop, who to swap, who to shop article is up uh, by our writer Ariana. And uh, in there, she has uh, for her drops, uh, Rex Burkhead slash James White, uh, essentially just the New England backfield, which she had contacted me after it came out because Rex Burkhead ended up having a good game, I think, and uh, she wanted to change it. But ultimately, I told her, you know, that they don't get to play the Jets every week. Um, So I think that that's still pretty solid for drops. Uh, Brad, any opinion on that? Do you keep Burkhead or or White, or are you giving up on that New England backfield moving forward in the fantasy season? I think it's tough. I think it's tough to trust either of them, to be honest. I think if you're starting one of them, you're probably desperating starting. It's like a desperation play. So, you know, Burkhead had a good game last week, but um, Damian Harris, if when, once he comes back, he's going to be the starter. So mm-hmm. I would tend to agree that both of them are probably droppable. James White is usually that, that pass catching back, and the Patriots right now really can't pass the ball a ton. They had an all right game against the Jets on Monday night, but really they trailed that almost entire game trying to play catch up. So um, the Patriots are a run first team in a, in a pass first NFL. So um, Burkhead may vulture a touchdown here or there. James White might get a swing pass that goes for a touchdown here or there. But I think that really, if you want to own a running back, it's either going to be Damian Harris and then Sony Michelle is going to be coming back from the IR here soon. Mm. So it's just going to muddle things more. So I would agree that they're both probably droppable. And ultimately, on any given game, Cam Newton's probably going to be the leading rusher on that team anyway. So, you know, really yeah, eating he into – He had two rushing touchdowns last week. So Yeah, I mean, it goes to your uh, to your take on uh, Kyler Murray with the Cardinals and any of the, the backfield in Arizona where it's the same in New England where the, the quarterback is going to be the most likely to get a goal line touchdown. So how relevant are any of those running backs to your fantasy team? That depends on how many touchdowns are being scored across the rest of your roster. Yep, absolutely. So let's look at some swap candidates. These are players that um, that Ariana thinks that you should be targeting to um, trade for um, or trade away. Uh, she had Adam Thielen, Chris Godwin, and Eric Ebron on that list. Ebron, I'm not really too concerned with either way. The tight end position this year, especially now with an injury to George Kittle, it's really just Travis Kelsey and then everybody else. Um, so tight ends, I'm not overly concerned about. But Adam Thielen is an interesting one um, just because he's in a good offense and Kirk Cousins has been playing better. Um, so, you know, he's somebody that if I need receiver help, I'm going out to get uh, because the the way people are looking at it, they may see Justin Jefferson as the more valuable player on that team because he has the higher ceiling, I guess, on a week-to-week. Um, but I think Thielen has the higher floor, which if I'm a fantasy manager that's hurt for receivers, I'm looking for that high floor. So uh, what's your take between Thielen and Godwin? If you're somebody looking to go and, and trade for a receiver, who are you trying to get? I guess if I'm looking at them, I'm looking at them as my wide receiver three or four on a team instead of maybe a wide receiver two or one. So um, if I'm trading for them, that means I've probably already got a pretty good wide receiver core and, and I'm not expecting them to put up, you know, top wide receiver numbers. So Godwin has obviously been hurt um, a lot this year. And uh, so that has played a role with that. I don't think it's more of him being less productive, but just him not being able to stay on the field. So if you can, you know, if you're able to weather that storm, I think Godwin is someone that I would probably hold on to more than Thielen. Um, Right now, it seems like the Vikings want to take the ball out of Kirk Cousins' hands. So Dalvin Cook the last two weeks has dominated the touches all over the field. Um, and that's hurt Justin Jefferson. That's hurt Adam Thielen's production. Um, so, I mean, if you're going right down to it, I obviously I think I'm going to hold on to Chris Godwin more than I would hold on to Adam Thielen. Okay. 
I'd probably go the other way, but I've always liked Thielen. Um, I think he can do a lot of things people don't give him credit for, and he's an excellent route runner with good hands. Um, and Godwin, to me, the only downfall for him is he's just been hurt and banged up so much throughout this season. I have difficulty trusting that he's going to stay healthy. And even if he stays healthy, now there's just a lot more mouths to feed with Gronkowski emerging and AB added to the offense. So I would lean Thielen, um, but, you know, we can disagree once in a while, Brad. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a free country. We can do that. <laughs> well, let's uh, f- uh, move on really quick. Uh, you do a weekly DFS column for us. Can you give us a, a few minutes on who you like for DFS uh, to plug in the lineups for this weekend for week 10? Yeah, so we kind of changed up the format a little bit with the DFS. So now kind of what we focus on is just putting together a team uh, that you can put into a lineup. Before, we would kind of give you some players to target um, and then give you a team that may include some of those or some that we did or didn't talk about this. Now, the last couple of weeks, what I've done is, is basically kind of put together a team and kind of explain the thinking behind why this guy is going to be in, why this guy, um, why we chose him over this, uh, depending on schedule-wise and that. So what we're looking at this week, and obviously there's quite a few good offensive matchups. Like we, we talked about earlier in the podcast, Josh Allen and Kyler Murray are playing uh, the 4 o'clock game in Arizona. Uh, Bills and Cardinals, there's going to be probably at least 60 or 70 points scored in that game. So, you know, teams are going to be built around probably that matchup. Um, you've also got Houston and Cleveland, which has a potential to be a really good uh, high-scoring game between Deshaun Watson and Kevin Stefanski and the Browns offense between Kareem Hunt. And it sounds like Nick Chubb is going to be back this week. Um, so, That's the word. Yep. And so what we're going to do from there is kind of – Pull players that maybe have – you get players that are going to have good production but have a high cost. And, and you also – these are kind of the matchups that I target for players that maybe don't cost as much but have a higher uh, potential ceiling because of the ability for the game to get out of hand or the, for the score to get high. So um, from that standpoint, obviously Josh Allen, Kyler Murray, they're going to be one of the more higher price op- options this week. When we look at quarterbacks, if you're looking for more of a bargain, um, Jared Goff, I think, is a relatively good play this week just because of the way that Seattle's defense has just been getting destroyed through the air. Mm-hmm. He's not somebody that you're going to play every week, but he's only at 7,400 this week. If you look at Allen and you look at Kyler Murray, they're at 88 and 8,700, um, respectively. So your high-end plays are Murray or Allen. I think a good sleeper pick this week is Jared Goff. If we look over at running backs – stay away from the Bills running back situation when it comes to um, the high scoring matchup. They just don't commit to the run like they had in the past. So um, we looked a little bit more, obviously some of our top scores, uh, Derek Henry, who was had a little bit of a pedestrian week last week, but they play the Indianapolis Colts this week who have the number one rush offense. So probably sticking, uh, staying away from him a little bit um, and going down the rest of the roster, you've got James Robinson and Chase Edmonds. Robinson, who's going against the Packers defense, who is 31st against the run. Mm-hmm. And you've got Chase Edmonds, who's going against Buffalo's defense, who if they can stay competitive in the game, the Cardinals can continue to kind of feed him the ball like they did last week against the Dolphins. But if the Bills jump out to a quick lead like they did last week against the Seahawks, the Cardinals may have to play catch up with Kyler Murray running the ball and passing the ball. Um, wide receivers – a lot of good wide receiver matchups this week. I mean, Stephon Diggs, DeAndre Hopkins, we're, we're focusing on that Bills-Cardinals uh, matchup. Tyler Lockett, I mean, DK Metcalf seems like he's pretty much – you can pencil him in for 80 yards and a touchdown every week, 15 <laughs> to 16 points a game. So um, I don't mind paying up for him, uh, especially with the, his consistent production. And he's only at 8,300. He's still not the highest wide receiver uh, salary, which would would be Devonte Adams at ninety five. Um, when we're looking at tight ends, tight ends have been a little bit harder now. Travis Kelsey is on by this week for the Chiefs. He's been the top scoring tight end like three of the last four weeks. So mm-hmm. there's really not been a ton of production, but there is a really nice sleeper I like this week, and it's Dallas Goder. He uh, is came back uh, for the Thursday night game two weeks ago against the Cowboys and then had the, a bye week here to kind of continue to heal from that fractured ankle. And I think that he's going to be back this week against the Giants uh, at full strength. And so the Eagles offense has been a little bit better lately. They're starting to get a little bit healthier. Uh, Jalen Rieger came back uh, two weeks ago. 
got Godert coming back. Ertz is going to be on the IR for a while, so he's going to be the guy that gets force-fed from the tight end position. And Carson Wentz doesn't shy away from, from throwing to his tight ends. Um, when we're looking at defenses this week, I always – I very rarely go with a top-ranked defense as far as salary-wise. I try to find yeah, it's a just not cost-effective. It, it isn't. And, I mean, you're saving $500, but that $500 can take you from a Tier 4 – to a tier two wide receiver or a tier two running back. So I think that you always go bargain with your defenses, unless you're just dead sure that you really are set on the matchup this week, the Packers play the Jaguars. So they're, they've got the Jaguars six round rookie starting at quarterback. That could be a good play. I'm still not a huge fan of that play. They're the third highest uh, salary defense this week. Um, another nice play down the line though, that I really like is, the uh, the Titans at the Colts. So the Titans defense has played better lately. They obviously they played the Bears last week and they weren't able to do. Uh, the Bears obviously don't have a good quarterback situation um, or a more stable quarterback situation as the Colts do. But Philip Rivers has struggled a little bit in Indianapolis, and I think the Titans defense are starting to get a little bit healthier. They're starting to be able to. Um, you know, get back to the kind of that early season dominance that they had uh, at the beginning of the year. Uh, another defense I like this week is the Vikings. They play the Bears. The Bears, again, offensively have been inept. If the Vikings can stop the um, Bears run, they should be able to hopefully put up another uh, solid week. They had a solid week last week um, as well in fantasy. So uh, those are kind of the two teams I like. And just kind of an overview, obviously the article, the DFS article will drop on Friday. Um, and then, like I said, we changed up the, I guess the, the outlook of everything a little bit to just kind of focus on, on putting together a team that you can slide into a lineup, um, and basically just copy and paste it right in and you don't have to do any research, take care of all that for you. And hopefully if you want a little bit of money, you give us a little bit of credit online, whether it's through social media or, uh, dropping a comment on the site. Absolutely. And you do a great job with that DFS column. Uh, definitely check it out on findbet.com if you haven't, uh, especially if you play DFS and you're just looking for a little uh, bit more advice. Um, a couple things to mention. I love the James Robinson play and he's just been fantastic all year. Shame on everybody for just kind of completely uh, disregarding his, his early rise as kind of a flash in the pan. Um, he looks like he's going to be a legitimate back along with Antonio Gibson, a couple of uh, uh, young running backs that look like they're going to have a job in the NFL for quite a while. Um, and in regard to the Bills and the, and the Cardinals, I know we talked about it a lot already, uh, but we focus a lot on that matchup just because of the potential of the offensive explosion on both sides of the ball there. So, you know, again, I'm, I'm super excited for that one. Um, and one more thing on Josh Allen, I wanted to ask you, who would you compare Josh Allen to in regards to like NFL quarterbacks? Like what would your comp for him be, uh, in regard to like past, uh, kind of like NFL legends? Um, okay. So I, I, I like this comp, I guess that I've kind of formed in my head. I think he's a really good mix of Ben Roethlisberger and Brett Favre. Mm -hmm. Brett Favre could make some amazing throws on the run, had a really strong arm, made just some plays that made you drop your mouth, but then also made some one of the most ridiculous interceptions that you would see in a game too. So he, I think he still leads the NFL in interceptions as well. I think he's probably one of the, one of the only Hall of or, uh, the, the Hall of Famer with the most interceptions as well as touchdowns. So Absolutely. I think that – he fits really well. He's got that gunslinger mentality. He's like, I'm going to make the play. And, you know, 70% of the time it turns into a wild play, but there's that 30% of the time it's like, what the heck were you thinking? And so you have to take the good with the bad with that. And then I like the Roethlisberger comp because early in Roethlisberger career, you could see these defensive linemen would just bounce off of him. They'd try to tackle him <laughs> and they just basically would slide off. It's like, I, I don't know how they can do it, but, you know, they're kind of built the same frame, Allen's 6'5", 240, and Roethlisberger's right around that same guy. I don't think he's as tall, but right around 230, 240, and that's big for a quarterback. That's not 5'9", 210 Kyler Murray running at you, you know, so that's a lot to, to handle. And also, by the way, he can run a 4'6", as well, too, as a quarterback. So that, I think, is a really – I like the whole Roethlisberger-Farve kind of mesh comp, if you want to put two together. Um, I think that he embodies those two quarterbacks 
pretty well. Yeah, I mean, actually, that's exactly where my my mind went and has been on Allen. I mean, before this season, my comp for him was a straight-up Brett Favre comp, um, you know, taking the size out of it and everything. But now that he's starting to look like a more accurate passer, uh, Stefan Diggs and him obviously have a good rapport, um, and it's only going to get better as they have more time to work. And now that he's becoming more accomplished as a passer, I think you can add in that Ben Roethlisberger um, comp to his overall comp because of uh, the increased passing efficiency. And that makes him a very dangerous player in that AFC East and then AFC, you know, they have Patrick Mahomes, Josh Allen. I still put Lamar Jackson in there because until proven different, um, you know, there's still a lot of games and a lot of season left for him to kind of perform better individually, but ultimately his team is still winning, which is what you ask of your quarterback, you know, uh, Patrick Mahomes also statistically had a bit of a down year last year compared to what he had done the previous season. Um, but he also ended up winning the Super Bowl. So, you know, until all things are settled and the dust is cleared um, on the 2020 NFL season, uh, I guess we'll have to hold judgment on certain things. But re- I want to get back to the Jeopardy game, Brad. We kind of spent a little bit longer on that than I think we were expecting to. Currently, you're six out of eight on the questions. We're almost going to kind of, I think, go on a lightning round here just so we can fit everything inside the hour. Uh, But, Brad, are you ready to resume Jeopardy? I'm ready. Answer. The Steelers and Patriots are tied with the most Super Bowl championships with six, but including all titles before the Super Bowl and playoff system were implemented. This team holds the most titles with 13. 13. Uh... Now, this is before the Super Bowl even including before playoff systems were implemented. So it just was, um, you know, the team with the best record was considered the the league champion. So that should at least tell you that it's a team that's been around since the inception of the league. Uh, I'm going to say the Green Bay Packers. The Green Bay Packers is correct. Oh, man, that was a complete guess. <laughs> so really quickly – yeah, I mean, that probably was a help. I mean, you got to figure it's either like the Packers or the Bears at that point, and uh, the Packers are definitely the more likely uh, out of those two, I think. But uh, Green Bay moved on to 6-2 and two with their win over San Francisco. Rodgers had four passing touchdowns and over 300 yards passing. Devontae Adams was spectacular again with 10 catches, 173 yards, and a touchdown. Uh, San Francisco has managed to stay afloat, but this Packer team was just too good for their second and third stringers to hold up against Aaron Rodgers and the crew. Um, So before moving on to the next question, um, there is another one that's relevant to Green Bay and San Francisco. So this question actually has two parts. Um, So I guess I'll just ask them as two separate questions, though. So Brad, answer. There have been five instances of players winning the MVP at least two seasons in a row. This player has won the most consecutive MVP awards in NFL history, winning three MVPs in back-to-back-to-back seasons. Who is that player? Um, boy, I don't think it. Hmm, this is tough. Uh, is it Peyton Manning? It is not Peyton Manning. Yeah, it's tough. Brett Favre won the MVP in 1995. 1996 and 1997 and is the only player to win the award three years in a row. That's impressive. I that is impressive. That. But your, your, your uh, performance in this Jeopardy game also per- very impressive, Brad. Seven out of 10 so far. Uh, we're moving Hall on. Of fame performance. All, yeah, Hall of Fame performance. I mean, if you're in baseball, you'd be the greatest hitter in the history of the game. So. Exactly. Seven Congratulations to, to you. <laughs> All right. Answer 11. Peyton Manning is the only player in NFL history to record two separate back-to-back MVP wins, once over the 2003 and 2004 seasons, and again in 2008 and 2009. In 2003, however, he won co-MVP with this player, putting that asterisk on the 2003 win. Who did he share co-MVP with that year? Hmm. Uh, That was Steve McNair. That was Steve McNair. The often forgot about Steve McNair, but uh, very good during his time. And they were, what, a couple of inches away from winning a Super Bowl uh, under his yeah, uh, tutelage. Yep. Um, other back-to-back MVPs, Jim Brown in 57 and 58, um, Joe Montana in 89 and 90, and again, Brett Favre with a three, uh, and then Peyton Manning twice. So um, I thought that was pretty interesting. And I, 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 
was hoping that you wouldn't have forgotten about McNair, but uh, I figured that you would. But McNair's Titans got back on track this week with a win against the Bears. Uh, Nick Fole has the Bears looking a little bit better offensively, but where do you think the Titans end up this year after that 5-0 start and now uh, on a bit of a slide, maybe getting back on track? Uh, what do you make of them, Brad? Uh, I, I don't know. I, I don't think the Titans are as good as everybody build them to be, I think. Obviously, they – had the COVID go through their, their uh, facilities. So they were off for basically two weeks. Um, and a lot of their games at the beginning of the year, they were winning by 31, 30, they were 37, 34. So they were, they were very close games that they ended up winning. Um, so I think that, I think they're going to regress back to me. I think they're still going to win the AFC South. They're still going to be in the playoffs and probably are going to win a first round playoff matchup against one of the lower seeded teams. I think the AFC is more top-heavy this year than it is strong throughout. Um, you know, I'm a little bit worried about – I'm a little worried for Baltimore, I should say. I, I don't know if they're as strong of a playoff contender. They're going to make the playoffs, but I don't know if they're as, as strong a contender as we thought they would be at the beginning of the year but with the way that offense is going. So, um, I think the Titans are kind of in the same boat. I just – Tannehill has played well, and he's, he's had a, a, definitely a career revival in – um, in Tennessee from where he was in Miami, but I just don't think that he's the guy that can get them over the top. And I know they spent a lot of money on this year, but I just watched him too many years in Miami with, with being a Bills fan and how he struggled. So, you know, they, they put a whooping on the Bills this year, and I understand that, you know, one game is one game. But, um, yeah, I, I just don't know. I think they'll be in the playoffs. Maybe they won a game. I don't know if they're going to repeat as AFC uh, into get into the AFC championship like they did last year. Fair enough. All right, Brad, question, answer 12. Are you ready? I'm ready. Answer. Patrick Mahomes played his college ball at Texas Tech, but surprisingly, he only had scholarship offers from these two other D1 schools. Who are oh those two God. schools? <laughs> There's no way you get this one. This is ridiculous. If you even get one of them, I'll give you the question. Uh, um, all right. So he played at Texas Tech. Uh, I don't think he transferred out of Texas Tech. I can't remember. Uh, or transferred from like another school to Texas Tech. I can't. I, don't, I think that was somebody else. But um, where is he from? Dude, I don't even know where. I don't even know where Patrick Mahomes is from. That's going to be the issue. Like, I think space because no human plays football that good. Robot was he from? Uh, from you know, like Silicon Valley? I don't know. Um, all right, let's throw some guesses out there. I'm gonna say. I'm gonna say UCLA and. Um. North Texas. We'll stay in the Texas. <laughs> those are great guesses. I love those. The way both of them way off. Um, this one was a very difficult and unfair question, unless you're like a Patrick Mahomes super fan. Uh, but the other two schools that he got scholarship offers from were Rice and Oklahoma State. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so that's a tough one. But uh, you're 8 of 12 now. But really quickly, in a, a game against the Panthers, Mahomes had to be great for them to win. Uh, he was great, but that's a little scary if you're a Kansas City fan, I think. Uh, Mahomes threw 372 and four touchdowns. Um, the running game really wasn't a factor. And with the addition of Le'Veon Bell to that offense and to that running back group, it hasn't translated to much success yet. Um, and if anything, it seems to almost have been hampering uh, Clyde Edwards-Elaire as he isn't getting all of the primary uh, touches anymore and some of those are going to Bell. Um, so how do you think the workload gets sorted out there in Kansas City? Um, you know, it's tough. It's tough to – it's tough, I guess, from a running back standpoint, because they don't, they run the ball, but they don't, you know what I mean? I feel like they pass first and they run to complement the pass just to keep defensive honest. So I don't know, you know, especially now with Le'Veon Bell coming in, like it's definitely muddled. Like, I don't know if I was a Clyde Edwards Solaire owner, I would not be very thrilled about the prospect of even from a dynasty standpoint, especially if they resigned Bell this year. Um, say they go and they win another Super Bowl and Bell wants to stay there and he's going to sign for $3 million just to stay in Kansas City. Like, that would not be ideal at all. So um, they're a pass-first team, and it's a pass-first league. So 
it's tough, I think, down the road going into the future where you're going to find those true three down running backs or those teams that are going to run the ball more than they pass. So, um, you know, I guess if I'm looking at that situation, you know, it's not promising from a fantasy standpoint, from a winning a Super Bowl standpoint, you've got two really good running backs that are going to make teams have to prepare for. So um, if they're going to take away the pass, they're going to run just like the bills the bills took away the chiefs uh, ability to pass. And what they do, they ran for 260 yards on them. So um, they just are very well rounded from that standpoint. Good points. And, you know, I almost wonder because it does seem like Bell and Hilaire are almost decoys at times. So to have two running backs of that talent to serve that type of role makes me wonder if Bell was signed by Kansas City as a means to just keep Bell away from Baltimore. Because I thought that Bell would be an excellent um, player to add to that roster and fit that system and someone that's proven to come out of the backfield and catch balls, you know, coming out of that um, shotgun play fake formation that they run a lot of those options off of with Lamar um, Bell would be very dangerous in that type of a situation because he's still obviously an adequate runner um, but an accomplished pass catcher as well and that would have made Baltimore I think uh, infinitely more dangerous offensively where they've looked flat at times uh, Gus Edwards not have been has not been as good as he's been the past couple of years he had a fumble uh, in the goal line uh, last week as well I believe And uh, Lamar obviously hasn't been what he was last year as well. So, um, you know, Baltimore made a couple of interesting non-moves and not uh, really going after Le'Veon Bell when they could have after he was released by the Jets. And also I think that they should have been the primary uh, callers for Antonio Brown because Lamar, I think, needs a better pass catcher in that offense. Uh, Marquise Brown is, I think, a decent slot receiver, maybe a wide receiver too. But when you have Brown and Willie Sneed heading in as your top two receivers, Uh, any given week for Lamar. I think that definitely hampers them. Uh, But we have to move on really quickly because we're already over time by a minute. Uh, But this is the last question, so we made it the whole way through, so I just wanted to finish it out, Brad. Uh, You ready for the last answer? I'm ready. Answer. Since 1990, there have been four teams to make it to the Super Bowl after relocating. One franchise makes up two of those appearances in the St. Louis Rams that at that point was formerly of L.A., and the new L.A. Rams, formerly the St. Louis Rams. Um, These are the only – or this team is the only team to both win and lose after relocating a Super Bowl um, with Kurt Warner's Rams winning once they moved to St. Louis um, from their previous stint at L.A. Who are the other two teams that have made Super Bowl appearances in the past 30 years um, after relocating? There are two. Uh, Tennessee. Yes. And uh, Texans haven't made it to the Super Bowl. Um, uh, Yeah, we just gave the example of the Rams. Trying to think. Um, Oh, the uh, Indianapolis Colts. They were in Baltimore and they won a Super Bowl. That is true, but that was not within the past 30 years. So, unfortunately, Brad – you got the last question wrong. The correct the answer Colts? is the Baltimore Ravens, formerly the Cleveland Browns. Oh, all right. I got gotcha. you. Okay. Gotcha. But you were all correct. Right. You are correct on that one. It's just that I, it was excluded from the time frame that I gave you. It was a very confusing it. question. It was. It was. I, I as I was reading it, I was messing up. I, was, yeah. I demand you stop counting and only count the first 12. 13. <laughs> <laughs> uh, since this is a nonpartisan podcast, Brad, I will, <laughs> I will go with that. So I'll take that. I will, I will strike that 13th question as it was confusing and misleading. Um, and if it pleases the court, I will final score you at uh, eight correct answers out of 12, um, which was a good show. I, I definitely applaud you, Brad. Good showing. Uh, he had no none of these answers, and he did had none of these uh, questions presented to him before we started recording. So to go uh, eight to 12 uh, – the Jeopardy game was pretty impressive. Uh, we were going to go through and, and talk about the Ravens and the Rams and uh, the Browns, uh, but there's really not time. We're already over, and I apologize for that. So, unfortunately, uh, that's all the time that we have for this week. 
I want to thank you for joining us. Uh, you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts by searching FindBet. Go to findbet.com to check out all of our newest content this week where you can find out who to drop, who to swap, and who to shop on your fantasy teams. Uh, betting, advice, <laughs> betting advice for week 10 of the NFL and Brad's DFS start sit recommendations. Um, well, his team recommendation uh, will also be up on Friday. So remember to follow us on Twitter at find underscore bet and on Instagram at find bet, just one word, to know when all of our new content hits findbet.com. Uh, Brad, thanks again for joining us. And do you have any parting words of wisdom for our audience this week? Nope. Just uh, it's going to be another week, week 10 in the NFL. I'm surprised that we made it this far, but it looks like we're hopefully going to get a relatively full season in with COVID and everything. So I think so. At this point, they'll be calling up the replacements from uh, that Keanu Reeves movie if they have to finish the season that way. <laughs> they're going to finish the season, though. There's no way they're not. So hopefully. Um, but again, thanks again for joining us on The Catch. And until next time, May the waivers always be in your favor, my friends. Goodbye.